0: Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Sweden in Focus, the local's podcast looking at the week's most interesting talking points. We are recording this episode on Thursday the 8th of December. Coming up today, we're going to be talking about the Nobel Banquet this weekend, Sweden's Santa Lucia celebrations, new comments from the Migration Minister about permanent residency that were reassuring for workforce migrants, less so for people who came to Sweden as asylum seekers, We'll look at the extradition to Turkey of a suspected PKK member. We'll listen to an interview with Pakistan's ambassador to Sweden. And finally, we'll examine the government's plans for a cultural canon and what it's likely to mean for foreigners in Sweden. I'm Paul Amani and I'm joined in Stockholm by James Savage. And in Malmö, we have Becky Waterton and Richard Orange, and we also have a guest today, Anna Trube, a critic of the cultural canon proposal, who is calling in from Orker. Is that right, Anna? Is that where you're calling in from?
2: Yes, exactly. From a very cold Orker.
0: How cold is it there today?
2: Oh, it was minus 15 when I got up. It's a little bit better now. Okay, I think
0: <laughs> we're going to need to tell people where Vingöker is. Not everybody's going to be aware.
2: Oh, it's about one and a half hour from Stockholm, like a little bit away from Katrina Holm.
0: Sort of in towards Örebro, that direction.
2: Exactly.
3: Best known for the as being the hometown of Jörn Peshon, former Prime Minister of Sweden, right?
2: Exactly, and one of the Hollywood wives too, I think. <laughs> 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 so it's a it's it's a it's a mixed bag.
3: <laughs> Brilliant.
0: Uh, well, welcome to the podcast, Anna. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Just give some background.
2: Yeah, Uh, thank you very much for having me on. Uh, I'm the chairman of DEEK and DEEK is a a trade union uh, and we organize people that work in culture, communications and within the creative area. Mm So librarians and people that work in museums and communicators and and so on. And before I ended up there, I was the head of a publishing house and I translated books and I even wrote a book and I've meddled a little bit in politics.
0: Former
3: head of the Pirate Party, is that right?
2: Yes, that is true. (laughs) It it feels like a lifetime ago.
3: (laughs) Pirate Party, that was interesting. So, I mean, because you you had had a period of quite... A quite a significant success in Swedish politics, didn't you?
2: Oh yes, the party uh, went on to be in in the European Parliament for uh, for uh, five years, so so that was good. But um, I left that in 2014 and since then I haven't uh, had anything to do with party politics. I, mm. I uh, try to work in other ways with with separate issues.
0: OK, well, I think we'll move on to what's coming up this week. And the, the Nobel banquet is being held on Saturday, the day this podcast goes out. What are the most important things to know about what is Arguably, the party of the year in Sweden.
3: Well, what's not to know? I mean, it is for for most Swedes, it's a it's a really really big occasion. I mean, you notice it; it, it, it takes an awful lot of media space. You see, you know, the, for the whole week leading up to the Nobel banquet, the, the big news bulletins. They're interviewing Nobel Prize winners. They are talking about the things that the Nobel Prize winners have done. So it becomes, it's, it's very educational. And then on Saturday, we will have the, the, the not only the banquet, but first the, the kind of business end of it, the prize giving, where in the Stockholm Concert Hall, all the prize winners are, are, are given their award by the king with lots of dignitaries lined up to sort of lend the occasion, a sense of this is a really, a really big deal. And it is a really big deal. Then after the Concert Hall, everyone goes over to the to Stockholm City Hall where there is a massive Massive banquet. It's held on the 10th of December every year and this banquet will be televised live, and Swedish people, lots of Swedish people, will sit down for several hours to watch other people eating dinner. Sounds amazing. It's, 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 look, it's, it, as, as a television spectacle, it's a bit special. Um, <laughs> it's not always entertaining. Some of it, you know, you, you, the, the camera will be panning around the room and talking about what people might be saying to each other. And of course, there's a lot of focus on the dresses and on the tiaras and on the jewelry and, you know, who's sitting next to whom and what they might be talking about about but then also there is a lot of focus on the science as well there'll be interviews on on TV interspersed between courses they'll interview all the prize winners the prize winners will all give um speeches which are supposed to be fairly light-hearted mm-hmm. although I, I think when you look at the media coverage and when you talk to Swedes a lot of what they what they're talking about is not what the prize winners are doing or what they're saying it's what it's what the Royals have got on their heads or what sort of dresses they're wearing or which politician is dancing with which other politician because they the, the dance at the end of of it is is all filmed but you know if you want to really up your kind of swedish credentials when you have to pass that citizenship test watch the Nobel <laughs> banquet and and learn to enjoy it because if you've done that then you are really Swedish
0: nothing in the world would make me watch the Nobel banquet <laughs> is, is anybody else going to be watching
2: oh well well, being the Swede here I have to confess that I, I do watch it because I want to see when they come in with the desserts and you have to wait a long time for the desserts
3: <laughs> do, you organ- do, you, do you do what a lot of Swedes do organise uh, a, a Nobel party where you kind of like try and eat Nobel style food while you watch it on the TV, because I've heard of people doing that. Do you do that?
2: No, I don't. I have friends that do that, but I I, I don't have the patience to do that myself. So so I sit there and eat like macaronis or something. And they, they have
3: a completely different dinner over there.
0: Have you ever been invited, James?
3: No. No, you have to be very, you have to be very, very eminent to be invited. So you're, that, you're that bloke off the telly. I'm that bloke off the telly, um, and. <laughs> <laughs> and I was, unfortunately, I've never made it into the Nobel Banquet.
0: OK. And we've also got St. Lucia's Day coming up uh, on Tuesday, the 13th of December. It's always on the 13th. What can you tell us about Lucia, Becky, and how her day is celebrated?
4: I'm glad you gave me this question because I actually didn't know who Lucia was before I looked into this. And so apparently Lucia was the daughter of a wealthy Sicilian family. Her father died when she was a child and her mother arranged her to marry a young man from a wealthy... Pagan family, but Lucia had vowed herself to God. She'd refused to marry, spurned all worldly possessions, and said she was going to distribute her dowry to the poor, which um, slightly annoyed her her suitor, who thought that that dowry rightfully belonged to him. Mm-hmm. So he denounced her. The, the The governor's guards came to take her away, and they were unable to move her. They tried to like get a team of oxen to like physically move her and the the oxen couldn't move her, and they tried to burn her, but then she wouldn't catch fire. Finally, they they killed her with a sword, but then... Up until that, they'd already, she'd already become a martyr. So now she's kind of venerated every year on the 13th of December as this, this Christian figure.
0: God, this is a really grim story. I've lived here for a long yeah. time and I've probably heard these details before, but having them all laid
3: out like that is kind of shocking. <laughs> yeah. Sounds a bit like Rasputin murder as well, doesn't it?
4: No, it's mainly just like an excuse for people in sweden to to kind of look forward to something at christmas get loads of lights have some nice singing eat some lusabulla which are these saffron buns it's Mm. it's not really seen as like i mean sweden's a very secular country and i think a lot of swedes you know you, you you can see that it's religious you can see that it's christian she's called saint lucia after all but I think a lot of Swedes nowadays see it more as like, okay, your children, like if you, have a, if you have a daughter, then she might she might like dress up in a little dress. If she's lucky, she might be the Lucia. It's like this crown of candles. It can be actual real candles dripping wax into their hair, or it might be LED candles and then they'll do this procession where everyone will sing Santa Lucia. Mm. And then all the boys will be Juan Gossar.
0: Star boys, yeah,
4: star boys. They'll be wearing these little pointy hats and uh, and white robes, which, yeah.
0: Don't say it. Don't say what you're thinking.
4: <laughs> yeah, I was I was just thinking that when I was saying white pointy hats and and robes, but um, it's, yeah, I've never made that connection before. <laughs> but yeah, you'll drink glug this mulled wine, you'll have Lusicata which are these little kind of S shaped saffron buns with raisins in, and um, peppercock, or ginger biscuits.
3: What does what does saffron buns have to do with this martyr in Sicilian in in in, in Sicily in whenever it was, the 12th century. You tell us.
4: <laughs> Good question, James.
5: <laughs> anyway, it's, it's, all, it's, it's, all, it's all lost in the midst of time. What I love about Lucia is it kind of combines in the UK and maybe in the US as well, what you get with a nativity play where all the children dress up and, you know, sort of do a little performance. So for small children, you know, you're watching your kids and it's all very sweet. And then older children, it's like a sort of carol concert. It's really kind of, it's quite classy.
3: And it's not just for kids either. I mean, you, you'll have offices will have their Lucia Torg. Really? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Has no, definitely idea. Yeah, so offices, big companies, they'll find someone who who they think will look rather fetching in a in a burning crown, and they will make her Lucia, and they will, and, and they will. They, you'll even have you know Juan Gossa and and all and all things sort of drawn from, drawn from the staff, and they'll have a choir and they'll sing together. It's not just for kids.
2: I actually think they wake up the Nobel Prize winners early in the morning with the Lucia talk as well, which I'm sure is a little bit shocking to have in your hotel room at <laughs> seven o'clock in the morning if you're not
3: if you're not prepared. There are stories, perhaps upon of American Nobel Prize winners being rather alarmed by the by the sight of these people in flowing white robes and pointy hats <laughs> coming into their rooms early in the morning. I, I, I assume they were forewarned. I assume those those stories are apocryphal, but it is the, the thought is kind of quite <laughs> alarming.
2: When I was a kid, we used to have real candles. So you had 50 kids standing real close to each other, singing for a long time. So after a bit, you could see people dropping because there was too little oxygen in between <laughs> the rows with people with candles. <laughs> it's so a little extra Tradition every year. So he passes out first. Yeah, So you had to kind of carry some kids away a little bit now and then.
0: It sounds more like Hunger Games than a sort of a nice tradition. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. And if listeners want to find out more about the Nobel festivities or Lucia, we have articles on the site that you can find in the show notes. Now, we've spoken before on this podcast about the government's stated plans to phase out permanent residency. But there were some interesting comments from the migration minister at the weekend in an interview with Radio Sweden, where she suggested that people who moved to Sweden to work wouldn't be affected. Can you tell us more about what she said, Richard?
5: She's been giving interviews to uh, almost everyone, actually. She she did a whole series of interviews, one with Svenska Dogbladet, one with Radio Sweden, and then another one with Dagens Nyheter on Wednesday. And she's mainly been striking a really sort of reasonable, conciliatory tone, trying to kind of stop people who are sort of alarmed by the government's plans. She's kind of doing a damage limitation job. So with Svenska Dugbladet, she said that a lot of our readers have been concerned about the plans to phase out permanent residency, which a lot of people fear will mean they they might lose their right to stay permanently in Sweden. And and to Svenska Dugbladet, she said the preference was to convert Existing permanent residencies into full citizenship, rather than to make them temporary again. And she also says she wasn't certain Sweden's laws would allow the government to withdraw permanent residencies that have already been granted. But um, in Radio Sweden was even, was more interesting actually because she she answered the question of um, whether the. Phasing out permanent residency would apply to all permanent residencies, and she said no, they wouldn't. They would only apply to asylum-related cases, and not to people who've received permanent residency as a result of coming here on a work permit. If that's the case, that's that will relieve a lot of readers, I think. And she talked about a lot of other things, but she also said that the government would bring it would have exceptions to the hike in the minimum salary you can have for a work permit. So it probably won't affect professions in high demand like IT engineers, which again will be a relief to a lot of readers. Mm. Finally said the government was aware of the problems with really long delays people are facing renewing work permits, which is a major issue for a lot of people. And she said that they're going to put pressure on the migration agency and maybe even change the law to improve its performance. So all of that is good news to an extent, but then on Wednesday in the most recent interview in Douglas New Year, she came back with the same kind of harsh tone she had before the election. And she said that the government's gonna do everything necessary to reduce immigration to a minimum. So she kind of showed the other side that this is, is a kind of radical government with radical plans to curtail the amount of people coming to the country.
3: I think the question I have is why there has been so little clarity from them up to now. This government has been campaigning for election, the union of these parties been campaigning for election for a long time. They've um they've they spent a long time negotiating an agreement and then now they've been in government for a couple of months and yet they haven't been able to clarify these very basic matters of policy until now and and have been very loose in the way they've used um,
5: language and the way and the way they've described these things i mean why do you think that is richard i i think they didn't know i think i think they hadn't thrashed it all out. They took a whole bunch of Sweden Democrat language that hadn't been thought out, that wasn't as they say. They keep saying the TIDA-AVTAR agreement is not a legal document and I think by, by what they mean by that is exactly what you say, that these these questions have not been decided on. So when they came out with it and when they announced the government proposal they couldn't answer questions as to what permanent residence are you talking about? Are you talking about work permit related or asylum related? They didn't know. They also want teachers and social
0: workers to snitch on under Documented migrants uh, so if a, if a child at school is the the child of an undocumented migrant the the government wants that that to be reported to the authorities which a lot of teachers and social workers are extremely uncomfortable with
3: obviously it puts teachers and and social workers in a very very difficult position you know the I guess the the, the, the TIDA parties are coming from the position that if someone is breaking the law and you're you're a public official then you have a duty to to, to kind of enforce the law or at least to, at least not 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 to facilitate someone whose presence in the country is 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 illegal but you know that's a very that's a very difficult position to put someone who is who's a teacher or a social worker in
2: it also affects uh, we organize librarians and librarians are very worried about this because the library law says that the libraries are for everyone without exception everybody should be allowed to come to a library and take part of whatever the library offers so if this suggestion becomes law then the librarians are kind of stuck between following the library law or this law. So whatever way they do, they can't do right. And I mean, most librarians find this very, very upsetting to have to, well, as you said, Paul, to to snitch on people. Uh,
0: Tero Engström, the. Right-wing extremist who killed the psychiatric care worker Ingmarie Wieselgren on Gotland this summer and planned to murder the centre-party leader Annie Love was found guilty this week and sentenced to psychiatric care. Was the verdict a surprise and is there expected to be an appeal?
3: It was not a surprise in in the sense that he was found guilty of the murder of Ingmarie Wieselgren. That was a foregone conclusion really. He was arrested at the scene. He pleaded guilty. That's pretty clear that he was going to get convicted. But there were some question marks. The fact that he was convicted of planning terrorist acts for the planned murder of Annie Love... Was perhaps not a surprise, but was not quite as certain. Then the fact that they that the court decided that the murder of Ingmarie Viselgrien was not considered a terrorist act was also not a foregone conclusion. But the court decided that the the bar for an act to be considered an act of terror is set quite high, mm. and it depends on the likely effect on society as a whole. And so Love's position as a party leader and a public figure that meant that any acts or pl- any planned acts against her passed that test and were considered to be planned, in this case, planned acts of terrorism, whereas the, the murder of Ingmarie Wieselgren was 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 murder, pure and simple. Then there was a the question of whether he would get prison sentence or to uh, secure psychiatric care. Now, he was sentenced to um, secure psychiatric care. On the question of appeal, this was quite a good result in a sense for engstrom so an appeal by him looks very unlikely but uh, the prosecutors under the swedish system can also appeal and they have said that they have not decided whether or not to do that but you what you what you could see here perhaps is that they might want to appeal on the grounds that imeli visigan's murder was not considered a terrorist act Mm. and also on the fact that he wasn't sent to prison that he was sent to psychiatric care
0: There was also a significant development in the ongoing saga of Sweden's NATO application and the question of how much the government is ready to bow to Turkey's will. Turkey, as we've mentioned before, says Sweden is too soft on the PKK, a Kurdish group deemed a terrorist organisation by Turkey and indeed the European Union. But this week, Sweden went some way to appeasing Turkey's President Erdogan, can you tell us what happened, Becky, and how Turkey has responded?
4: So Sweden replied by extraditing a convicted member of the PKK, the Kurdistan Workers' Party. So this is Mahmoud Tat, who was, uh, he was sentenced to more than six years in jail by Turkey, a Turkish court. Then he fled to Sweden in 2015, denied asylum by the Swedish authorities. So he has now been extradited back to Turkey um and he was detained by turkish police uh, shortly after landing at istanbul airport and uh, has been has been jailed in in turkey. Mm. Turkey's justice minister Bekir Bozdog said on um turkish state tv after this extradition that the return of the PKK terrorist is a start showing sweden's sincerity. So it looks like they're kind of expecting a little bit more. They're not just going to accept this one person being extradited.
0: And just as a quick addendum to that, the Expressen newspaper is now reporting that the Swedish prosecutor general has recommended to the high court that Sweden refuse to extradite two other men on President Erdogan's wish list, who Turkey claims collaborated with the Gulen movement suspected by Ankara of trying to stage a coup in 2016.
4: I don't think it's a a coincidence that the, the person that they did extradite was refused asylum in Sweden. No. I think the rules are a little bit stricter if it's someone that's been given asylum or given a residence permit.
3: Absolutely. Very much.
6: If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers.
0: Uh, Last week, we had the first in a series of interviews with ambassadors to Sweden. And earlier this week, I spoke to the Pakistani ambassador, Zahur Ahmad. Uh, We know that the local has a lot of Pakistani readers and listeners. And we wanted to find out more about the community and relations between Sweden and Pakistan. And I started by asking the ambassador to give some background about himself.
7: Uh, I'm a career diplomat and uh, I've been in this job for uh, nearly 30 years now. I've been posted in uh, several countries, in Asia and uh, Europe. I've been in UK twice, once in Budapest also, and then in China and Philippines. When did you come to Sweden? Uh, Almost two years now. And uh, I came right in the middle of the COVID. So uh, things were a bit different than they are right now.
0: Can we talk now a little bit about Pakistanis in Sweden? Uh, and
7: to start with, how many how many are there? Uh, according to our estimate, there are about twenty to 25,000. And uh, we don't have exact figures. And the reason is that uh, it depends how, how you define a Pakistani. And most of the Pakistanis here are basically dual nationals. They are uh, Swedish and Pakistani. And then there are uh, people who were not even born in Pakistan and they, have, they are of Pakistani heritage. So those people don't come into the figures of the Swedish authorities.
0: What are sort pa- Pakistanis doing in Sweden?
7: Mostly Pakistanis who have came, uh, have come to Sweden. They have come through the route of education. So most of them are graduates from Swedish universities, and uh, they are either working with Swedish companies or they are uh, they have their own startups. There are some in other odd businesses like restaurants and. Uh, uh, few in the construction industry also but most of them are IT people yeah. or engineers and then we have a group of doctors even it's a mixed group basically the interesting thing here is that probably the percentage of professional people the percentage of educated people is much higher than any other Pakistani origin community uh, in the in the rest of the world i think that's why that's why uh, they have created a very good uh, name for themselves and in the um, particularly i think there is there is a lot of potential for uh, developing collaborations in the it sector and in in generally in the technology sectors and uh, I think that is because uh, these people have awareness of issues in Pakistan, the market in Pakistan, and also they have awareness of what, what Swedish technology is, what, what is the uh, management style of Swedish uh, companies. So this is sort of uh, what we typically like to call a win-win uh, situation.
0: Does it differ a lot from um, Pakistani management style, Swedish management style?
7: Swedish management style, uh, from what uh, the little that I know, is uh, a lot about flat hierarchy. And this actually has impressed me a lot about uh, Swedish society. I've met some of the CEOs and had lunches with them. And at the end of the lunch, we all picked up our plate and put it in the sink. And we uh, made coffee for ourselves. And I I really like that. And I think that is uh, that uh, down-to-earth uh, way of thinking, The uh, not thinking too big of yourselves is a very good way. In, in Pakistan, we have a very hierarchical uh, sort of uh, management style. And that is uh, partly also because that we are uh, 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 a society which thinks in collective terms. We are not an individualistic society. So the head of the family and then we transfer the same thing into mm. a business so the head of the business the head of the organization is like a father figure or a mother figure to the whole you know institution so uh, you don't speak up to your father you don't have a free discussion with your father or mother you have a controlled mm. sort of discussion so that that is uh, the key thing which i could see is is a difference
0: a lot of pakistanis in sweden are work permit holders and the government plans to introduce a salary threshold of thirty-three thousand kroner to qualify. Are you seeing any concern among Pakistanis about this proposal?
7: Frankly speaking, as an ambassador, this is not uh, something which I am thinking about. Mostly, it's what I've seen is that uh, the Swedish companies and the Swedish businesses need talented people. Mm. And uh, they need these talented people irrespective of their nationality. In Pakistan, we have a youth population which is uh, almost uh, 40% of our population is under the age of 30. And these are people who are getting a good education and they are uh, developing their skills and as I said, that IT is one sector which has grown uh, tremendously, uh, especially during the dark COVID times. Obviously, it's up to Sweden to make their own rules mm-hmm. uh, in respect of uh, work permits and migrations. And, uh, but I, I, I think that uh, wherever there is an opportunity for businesses to collaborate, they will find a way.
0: And what would you say is
7: the best thing about living in Sweden in your experience? One thing is fresh air. The air is, I think, probably the quality of air. I I don't know. I'm not an environmental scientist. But the quality of air, uh, I I can feel it, that it opens up your lungs. And uh, uh, it's probably got to do something with the two biggest resources that Sweden has got. It's clean water and it's uh, forests. And uh, because of that, uh, the first thing that I noticed when I came here is that, man, the air is really good.
0: Do you have anything else that you'd like to add before we conclude?
7: Thank you very much, Paul. And I've been a regular listener to your uh, podcast and uh, reading your uh, website also. And I think you are doing a very good job in making people who, uh, like me, who uh, didn't have much of an exposure of uh, Swedish uh, culture and society to understand how things work here. Also putting up some of the specific concerns the expat people have. So good luck with that. And I'll definitely continue listening to you.
0: That was the Pakistani ambassador Zahur Ahmad. And All Going According to Plan will be continuing this series next week. So watch this space. We're going to turn now, as we often do these days, to the TIDA agreement signed by the government and the Sweden Democrats, in which they lay out their plans for the next four years. And one of the things they've said they want to do is to task expert committees in various cultural fields with developing a Swedish cultural canon. What do we know about the plans so far, Richard?
5: Well, as you say, in the agreement, the TIDA agreement, which is between the three governing parties and the far-right Sweden Democrats, it says that they would appoint experts with, quote, artistic competence in their respective fields, who would develop a canon that would include different cultural forms. So the idea is it will be a canon that will not just be literature, but perhaps Other cultural forms. In Denmark, there's eight categories, which is architecture, visual arts, design and crafts, film, literature, and music. So a lot of what the Sweden Democrats have been pushing follows from Denmark. So it's quite possible that, that that you'd see something similar to that. And in his speech outlining the government's plans, Prime Minister Ulf Christensen said that the experts would develop a proposal for a cultural canon over this mandate period. So they're not quite committing to having it in place. Over the next four years, it might be something that will go on for the next mandate period. And this idea has been proposed by loads of people over the years, from the Liberals, but primarily by the uh, Sweden Democrats. And what I think one of the things that's worrying people is that the Sweden Democrats form a culture a uh, spokesperson said, I think it, before the 2018 election, that the canon could become part of a citizenship test. So you wouldn't just have to read these as someone in Sweden. It wouldn't just be for schools, but you could, you know, potentially be deported because you haven't managed to understand them in a sufficient detail. So that's one of the things that's alarming people.
0: Okay, well let's let's talk now a little bit about what we think of the idea and Anna I think it's fair to say that you're not a huge fan of the idea of a state mandated cultural canon. Why are you so opposed?
2: No, I'm absolutely not a fan. There there's many reasons to not like this idea. Number 1 is that it is a nationalistic project. As Richard said, it's an idea that comes from the Sweden Democrats, and they have said that they want to use it in citizenship tests of of different kinds. So that's one huge problem. That is not a way that culture should be used. It's also a problem because what more are they going to do, do with this? They have clearly studied the Danish project with the Danish cultural canon, but we also know that absolutely nothing came of that canon. Nothing happened to it. It hasn't really been used. It has a Wikipedia page that's about it and not that much more. So if the government with the Sweden Democrats now want to make it successful within bunny ears they will have to push it out into school, push it out into libraries, push it out into museums. Then you have two problems. One is that we have a principle in Sweden that politicians should be at arm's length distance from culture. So they should set the framework. They can decide that we want a library or, or something like that, but they cannot meddle in what books the libraries should have. For instance, that should be the, the librarians, of course, who has the expertise to decide what is best, that what should be there. Uh, and this principle is very strong. This is a, a strong foundation for Swedish cultural politics for many, many, many years, decades. If they decide to to create a cultural canon and to push it out, which is the only way to give it any impact whatsoever, then they are in effect amputating this arm. Then politicians are suddenly there deciding what culture people should have access to. And that is not the way we have thought about culture in Sweden. And it is, well, I would say that it's, it is it is a
3: big threat to free culture.
0: Interesting. I'm sure we'll come back to you in a moment. Anna, what, what do the rest of you think of this idea? Um, we'll return to you first, James.
3: I agree with Anna that the idea that, that the politicians deciding exactly what is the, you know, what's the important culture in Sweden, what are the import, important cultural works of culture in Sweden that everybody should know um, is, is, is wrong. And in a sense, it's undemocratic. That's not what culture is about. However, I, I do think this idea of having a discussion about what are the most important parts of what are the most important works in Swedish culture what are the most important books what are the most important plays what are the most important films what are the most important works of art what is it that really you know that really defines us as a country it's a good discussion to have i think it's actually really good to to have a, a big broad public discussion about you know what is really important and, and and to bring in different views and to bring in different ideas i'd quite like this to be done in a more public and democratic way where i don't know TV series. It won't be like Melody Festival, and where, where, where you know, where, where, where people come and, and advocate for different ideas of things that should be in the cultural canon, and sing about them, maybe <laughs> <they> not <can't laughs> sing about, them. but but start a discussion with the public about about you know which things for us Swedes of all different kinds of shapes and sizes and backgrounds what is important for us as our sort of cultural
5: patrimony i don't know what the sweden democrats plans are but i don't think this is a plan to say this is swedish culture don't read anything else it's it's picking like you say like five plays 10 novels and saying maybe everyone should read this these this is this is great you know um yeah, I don't I mean, know. it's not going to tell librarians what to stock it's just going here are five books that that maybe people should read you know but i think
4: I, I think all of it, the main issue for me is What is a canon? How is it going to be used? Is it flexible? Can you add things to it? Can it be changed? Who's going to be reflected in it? Is it only going to reflect kind of mainstream Swedish culture? Is it going to reflect immigrant culture? Is it going to reflect non-Christian culture? There's so many questions. Like that point you were making before, James, you can still do that without calling it a cultural canon. I think the whole idea of this being like... The state are approving some kinds of culture. What does that say about the culture that doesn't make it into the canon? Is it not good enough? Is melody festival gonna be in the cultural canon no. is is kind of <laughs> fall cor- is me Macaron gonna be in the cultural canon like that's culture food is culture like are you gonna just have high culture are you gonna have low culture are you gonna have architecture are you gonna have books are you gonna have like the culture of Swedes not feeding guests' children. like All of these things are aspects of culture. And I think saying that some kinds of culture are better than other kinds of culture, I don't know if I agree with that. I,
2: I completely agree with you. And there's also a problem that the government doesn't really say much about what they want with culture, mm. apart from the fact that they want the Swedish cultural canon. They also have, if you if you take inflation and things like that into account, it's the smallest cultural budget in 20 years. Mm. That they have presented, mm. so there's a problem. And I, I also think, like you said, James, it's 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 important to have discussions on on culture. But I don't think a Swedish cultural canon will will make those discussions happen. What we need is we need school libraries that work with a school good school librarian in them. We need libraries that have enough funding. We need access to museums for everybody. All of those things will spark an interest for culture and they will spark interesting discussions around culture. I don't think a cultural canon is the way. I think it's something that the Sweden Democrats wanted in there. I think it's well, to be honest, a, ch- a cheap way for, for the government to look as if we have an idea what we want to do with cultural politics. But in reality, they're actually not doing that much. And when you talk to people that work with culture in one way or the other, they don't know what to do with a cultural canon. What they say is like, oh, but... What are we going to do with this? We have the competent, competence to to choose what we should offer people or what we should discuss and how we should discuss it. What we need is good, solid funding, and that is still lacking. So uh, it, there's a problem there.
5: I think the reason that I find it quite an exciting idea is that since I've been living in Sweden, I feel there's a gap where sort of nation-building should be. Maybe Maybe I do support a kind of soft nationalist project because... Sweden as a country has been so frightened of, of, of putting itself forward and going, this is who we are. This is This is something. And I think that's a problem for integration because people don't have anything to attach to. When countries go through big changes, like when Kazakhstan left the Soviet Union, you need to have a project of nation building to unite everyone, to bring everyone together. And I don't think Sweden's done that. And I think a cultural canon would be a good way of doing that, to say, you know, these are the great works that we all know about.
2: Dick made a, made a study of the eight parties in parliament in the spring, uh, and we looked at our cultural politics, and we could see that out of these eight parties, seven were I mean, they, they disagreed on a lot of things, of course, when it comes to cultural politics, but they were very much in agreement that, it, that this arm's length between politicians and culture should be upheld. Mm. They, they had a very strong view that f- free culture is important, mm. but the Swe- Sweden Democrats were very different. Uh, and it is important to remember that their view on this is it's, they want to use culture as a tool – to create a certain society or a, c- mm. a certain way of being and that is what i'm afraid of because i this idea comes from them and i don't see that the three parties in in government they, they can't really keep them away yeah
3: they're not pushing back on it you
2: know. no exactly so I, say, I think the sweden democrats will have a lot of say in this and their ideology and their view on things like this is so completely different uh, so that is always there in the background
5: but I'm not sure Swedish culture has that risk. Like I think Hungarian culture or Russian culture, there's all sorts of nationalist literature which could which can be used to kind of brainwash young children into a sort of oppressive totalitarian uh, support. I don't think Sweden has that. I mean, is there anything, is that there's no epic of the Swedes vanquishing their enemies or... The, the, I just don't <laughs> see what there is in Swedish literature that there is to be afraid of well, I mean, that the you, Sweden Democrats could push.
4: If you look at like far-right movements adopting kind of viking symbols and you know this whole story of we are the vikings that kind of go and rape and pillage the world and, you know mm. Nord- nordic resistance movement have like viking runes as their. you know I-, I could see that i could see that being like i mean it's already been adopted by the far right this is the thing if the state comes out and says this is culture i think it's it just culture is political and or I think it's Or they could force everybody
5: to, to, to stick up Muhammad as a roundabout dog on every wall. <laughs> exactly. And, uh, like I mean they could do something like culture that. Culture is
4: provocative and it's, you know, I, I think I think it's smart that the state doesn't get involved and I think it's something that the people should decide on as well yeah no and i think also you have the the far
2: right when it comes to these things when they when they talk about culture they're not necessarily so bothered with accuracy so mm. they they create this like image of how it was way back when and this great swedish culture and and it has very little to do with reality
0: yeah
2: i actually i read the local and saw your suggested list of a swedish culture well, that was, kind of straight, was like, that
5: was the, that wasn't my yeah. suggested list that was the ones yeah. that are most Obviously, likely to make
2: yeah, it. Yeah, but that, that was very interesting. I, I immediately stopped at Carl uh, Johan the Skända flaggan" defiled the flag, yeah, which is basically <laughs> basically a Swedish flag with profanities written across it. Um, I do not think that that is what the Sweden Democrats see before them no, <laughs> no. when absolutely, they are imagining not. A cultural canon. Yeah. Yeah. But nevertheless, an important piece of art, of
3: course. Absolutely, and that should be in any cultural canon. As should, but as as should Karl Larsson As should, you know, a lot of the sort of national romantic art from the from the nineteenth century. I mean, you know, it's, it's it's all of these things in in a in a in a proper cultural canon.
4: Anything can be used to build a nation if you kind of have the right framing around it. Like you would never think that like the Brothers Grimm could be used to like create this kind of feeling of a shared German identity. But you know, I think I think. If if people want to sh- create a shared identity, you can go back to this national romanticism. You can go back to kind of the most basic folk tales. And most things can be used to to create like a shared feeling of culture if you kind of frame it in the right way, I think.
5: No, I think that's a good thing. You know, I think Sweden needs more of a shared feeling of culture. I think it culture. really depends
4: on how it's done. It, it Like, <clears throat> I think if it's done in an exclusionary way, it's not good. And if it's done in kind of a political way, that's and it is exclusionary if you're saying you can only get citizenship if you learn all about these things. Like then then it's exclusionary. Totally.
5: Yeah, but they haven't said they're going to do that yet. No. Yeah, um,
4: but I think it would be a natural follow-on.
5: According to Mike, the editor of the uh, Den- Denmark site, the Danish Canon isn't just a Wikipedia page. According to him, they do take questions from it which do feed into the Danish citizenship test. So they don't it's not like you have to answer questions on the whole hundred and eight works in the canon, but in the learning material for the citizenship test, there are some selected facts about the canon that you have to know about?
2: I think it puts too much emphasis on how this list of, of different cultural phenomena should help people to integrate. If you go to a Swedish library or a Swedish museum, for instance, there is so much integration work that goes on there every single day. It could be reading, it could be language cafes, it could be yeah. any kind of thing. And when you take away a lot of money from that and, and really... Keep these institutions working on way too little money, and then you go like, oh, but the cultural canon will do all of those things. Mm. <laughs> no, no, it, no, it no, won't. No, it's, 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 kind of. But, but I completely agree. It, it, I want big discussions about culture. I think it's important for for everybody, whether you're new to Sweden or not. But I, I this fixed list coming from above, is a problem because it's, it's, uh, it won't do what they hope it will do if this is the only thing that the government wants with with culture well then then we have a problem it's much better if you give more money to the institution the institutions that are already there
5: absolutely
0: That's all for this week. A big thank you to Anna Trube for joining us. If you like what we do and want to become a member of The Local, we have an offer for listeners that you can find at thelocal.se forward slash podcast offer. If you already are a member, we very much appreciate the support and you, of course, have full access to all of the articles linked to in the notes. Thanks to our regular panellists, Becky Waterton, Richard Orange and James Savage. Our sound engineer is Reese Edwards. I'm Paul Amahni, and we'll be back again next week with another edition of Sweden in Focus. Until then, take care.
5: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen